You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm James Crepia, and he is Aaron Fentress, and this is the Ducks Confidential Podcast from the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Oregon Ducks winding down fall camp, shifting towards game preparations for Fresno State. We'll obviously get into that a little bit. Some of the position battles still to be decided, so lots to discuss there. But we start today, uh, and uh, we had, I think, touched on it a little bit, maybe just in passing and just in reference uh, last week's episode, Aaron, but the alliance announced today between Ooh. the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC. Is this uh, like the Rebel Alliance? Uh, it might as well be. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they they would portray themselves as such, and I, I barely even totally get the reference. Uh, I mean, I saw the originals, but I didn't see the last uh, several Star Wars. But be that as okay. it may, uh, they would be, definitely portray themselves as the uh, the <laughs> the rebels and. Uh, the big bad SEC as the dark side and uh, Greg Sankey as Darth Vader and all this uh, analogy. But be that as it may, uh, yes, the alliance between the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC, uh, and with all the ambiguity and word salad that was served up today by the commissioners of the leagues, uh, from Jim Phillips to Kevin Warren to George Klyovkov of the Pac-12. I know that you were just catching the drift of the general premise of this whole arrangement. <clears throat> which puts you right in there with many of the fans asking probably some of the same questions. So what do you have by way of your takeaways from the announcement and what you're hoping for out of this uh, alliance, as they're calling it? Well, I had forgotten about this, and I texted John Canzano about something. He said he was on the alliance call, and I was like, ooh, this sounds cool. So I started looking into it, and uh, I'm a little just confused. I mean, I think it's kind of cool that the – the uh, Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC are joining forces in some capacity, but it's weird to me that there's no written agreement in place. There's just a bunch of theories, mm-hmm. and you're not sure exactly how it's going to really impact football beyond some scheduling cross-conference, which I like. Like I like the idea of Oregon playing Florida State, playing Miami, playing those teams that they really never play. Um, but I, just there's no sense on when all this is going to happen and what the bigger picture is. Now, you look at the Pac-12 website, they're talking about student-athlete, mental and physical health, safety, wellness, support groups, strong academic experience, diversity, equity, social justice. Yeah, all the issues that, you know, really brought them to the table with a sense of urgency over the last month. I mean, right, that's really exactly. the rallying cry. None of these issues existed before. Right, exactly. You know, not had nothing to do with Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC. <laughs> no, None of the, no, no, no. Nothing, right. So it's, and all that stuff's great. Don't get me wrong. We're not trying to make fun no, of that. No. But all that stuff's being done. But that's not why this is being done. Way. 
Right. And that's not what the general fan is really wondering about. They're wondering about how is this going to enhance, if you're in the Pac-12, which we are, how is it going to in- enhance Pac-12 football, the Pac-12 experience? Uh, so that remains to be seen, correct? I mean, we have really no clue. No, and you got nothing by way of answers from that today from any of the commissioners, uh, including George Klyavkov of the Pac-12. I mean, I, you know, look, I had him on my radio show last week. He was uh, he definitely led people down the road a little bit further in that interview than he did today during this hour-long press conference that was where, right. there again, there was just total ambiguity from everybody. Uh, at least last week he mentioned, all right, well, everything's on the table. Now, we'll get back to that statement in and of itself. But everything's on the table regarding football. And that is A, number one in terms of his priority as commissioner, how to improve the football product for the Pac-12. Okay. Well, if everything's on the table, then eight versus nine games in the conference schedule. I know a long debated topic here in the (laughs) Pac-12. And the great irony is going to be that the SEC is going to go to nine and then the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are going to drop down to eight. But be that as it may. Okay. That's fine. No problem. Uh, if you go down to eight, starting in 2024, which is when the soonest that the Pac-12 could drop to eight conference games because of TV obligations and, and things, well, then you would theoretically be opening up a game to be played, a week to be played against somebody. And if you're going to do that, potentially as soon as 2024, you need to have an answer for who that somebody could be and need to be able to fill quite a bit of inventory quite quickly. Right. All right. All read. All perfectly rational. And he, and he had, like I say, he had said as much to me a week ago, and said, "Look, not predicting anything, but if we were to go to eight, and that's on the table, and eliminating divisions is on the table, etc., etc., etc. Well, what do you do? And that could certainly open up for some flexibility. Okay. Didn't say that today. The other commissioners didn't say that today. The press release did not say that today. So that's where there's some ambiguity there. To me. Putting out the press release and the statement and a bunch of canned quotes is fine. Going on an hour-long press conference with any, without any specificity in terms of timeline for this was a waste of time uh, because you could have at least provided a little bit of clarity. And frankly, if you're going to have a, uh, a Zoom press conference saying how like-minded you are and how scheduling is a big component of this, well, then the second sentence of that should have been, and Kevin Warren and George Klyavkov are here to announce that their conferences are choosing to go to eight conference games starting in whatever year. And with that, we will be, as conferences, announcing you know various crossover games uh, in light of that decision. But you didn't get that today. Now, again, in the long run, I'm with you. I wa- Look, it was it's such a great idea. I liked it when they came up with it 15 years ago. <laughs> but it was the Pac-10 and the Big Ten. Right. And that was in the early 2000s. And then it died before it ever came to fruition. Never saw the light of day in terms of actual on-the-field games. But I liked it then. I'm looking forward. I was looking forward to it then. I'm looking forward to it now. I would love to see it implemented, you know, as soon as possible. And for Big Ten and ACC teams to be on every Pac-12's, uh, every Pac-12 team's non-conference schedule every year, as soon as possible. Be lovely. But, but is you didn't that get better that today. than having? But is that better than having more conference games? Like that's that's the other right now. Too, right? right now, the answer for the conference is absolutely yes, for many reasons. Uh, one, if you go back to 2019, because obviously last year nobody, basically nobody, had any attendance. Even those who did have attendance didn't have 100 percent capacity. Obviously, in the Pac-12, basically nobody had any attendance of any kind. Uh, if you go back to 19. 
believe it is six of the bottom 12, at least in the power five level teams and the FBS level in attendance by way of percent of capacity are Pac-12 teams. Yes. So in terms of when we're talking about cross-division, and even if you eliminate divisions, fine, eliminate divisions. Right. I'm not against that. I'm all, I'm, I'm all for that as well, potentially. But what's going to move the needle? You know, this year, case in point, now it's an extreme. And when you come up with scheduling many years out, it's harder to, to say, break it. But Oregon's playing Colorado and Arizona this year. And it's terrible. They're the two worst teams in the league in terms of preseason projections. I know Colorado had a good year last year, and it was a funky year, and et cetera. But on paper, they're the two worst teams in the league. Arizona is absolutely the worst team in the league. They're picked almost unanimously to finish last in the South. And their over-under win total for the season, I think, is either one and a half or two and a half. So they are expected to be awful. And they have them both from the South, both at home. Now, you could say that's a bad draw and just a bad happenstance for Oregon, and it is. But particularly off of the last year, and now the situation on the ground today, how many people do you really think are going to show up at Otzen for those games? Now, of course, you can't say that. You could say that any situation based on what's on the ground today anywhere in the country. But if you replace one of those games with but you could Virginia, also replace, North you Carolina, could also up- NC State, Okay, but you could also end up replacing a game with USC with one of those other games or a game against Utah right. or Arizona State. So it, it can work both ways. It, in, lose, in, in those years, I mean, if, if, if you're in an eight-game conference schedule, theoretically, could you have something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But in the long run when you're trying to – and again, you're trying to – the argument is less about what you'd be losing on the conference side inventory and more about what you'd be adding, is particularly in the, if the long-term vision – and this was not laid out thoroughly today, unfortunately, by the commissioners. But if the long-term vision is to actually have – it just wasn't. It just wasn't. It was know, really less, uh, lacking today. specifics. But yeah. if the long-term vision is to have two non-conference games against the other conferences, one at home, one on the road, theoretically. Yeah. And, of course, yes, Notre Dame is included in this. So USC and Stanford already have you know what they've got. And six teams in the ACC in a given year already have what they've got. So it does work out a bit there. But – in terms of if the future plan is for everybody to play one home, one road, one each from each of the other two conferences. Now, mathematically, it doesn't work perfectly because there's 41 teams. There's also 12 in the Pac-12, 14 and 14, and then Notre Dame is a you know lone right. wolf there affiliated with the ACC. But be that as it all may, if you make it work some way, somehow, okay. Well, then like the question becomes – No, no, no. Play – no, 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 no. You go to eight. What? You go to eight, not ten. You go to eight. You go to eight. You go to eight. No, because then, because then you, no, because then you're saying that you are never, ever, 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 if you go to ten, playing anyone from the SEC, playing anyone from anywhere in the group of five, and whatever we're calling the future of the Big Twelve, that's not great either. Now, in terms of the timeline, ultimately to the fan today, the end result today of the announcement for most fans was: so when do I? Joe Oregon fan get to see them play one of the ACC teams that isn't currently scheduled or one of the big 10 teams other than Ohio state or Michigan state is on the schedule in the years ahead. When do you get to see them host that team at Otson or go to a place you've never been before? And the answer you got today from the commissioners was we'll get back to you. (laughs) 
And that's because while we're not here to blow up non-conference schedules and game contracts that already exist, to which I say, well, if everything's on the table, then why not? Why isn't that on the table? And I'm not talking about uh, uh, existing contracts with either SEC teams or, or Big 12 teams or what have you. No, I'm talking about of the SES level. If you're trying to include these games and get these games in the schedule as soon as possible and not in 2030, well, then what are we doing? You know, like basically, what what is the point of this announcement today for football specifically? Make, you know, we're not getting into headlines. the other sports. Right. But then the second sentence is what? Talk to you later. Right. Like exactly. You yeah. We'll and that's, later. Now, and that's now the, the pressure's on to deliver on this. Right. The road. So and the they don't have anything they, in writing. They don't have anything no. signed. No. That, that was another that's big the thing. Yeah, so then that was if, we're, if we're waiting for this to be hatched down the road, at least show me an egg that I can hold and nurture. And watch. Mm-hmm. There's no egg. There's just, oh, yeah, pinky swear. No, because they haven't even told you that they're going to move to eight conference games, which, again, the yeah. soonest is 24. So for Oregon's purposes, the soonest that the Ducks could have both, both an ACC and Big Ten opponents on the same schedule, in the same year, in non-conference play, would be 2027. And that's only because... They presently have an opening, so that's with the opening that exists and under the assumption that the league moves to eight conference games right. so that you actually feel both. That's the only way that even happens in 27. Otherwise, Oregon's talking about 2029, where it already has the start of a home-and-home series against Michigan State and an opening, whereby if they added an ACC opponent, whether they stay at nine or eight, it doesn't matter, then you get to both of these other conferences in this alliance. So as I say, a big, long press release, a whole bunch of canned quotes and a nearly hour-long press conference today on August the 24th, 2021, where for Oregon fans, they're looking at schedules going the soonest is 27. More realistically, it may not be until 29. Not for nothing. I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, for football, for football, for football, for men's and women's basketball. Hey, again, even Kevin Warren mentioned it. Uh, not for nothing, the Big Ten ACC challenge already exists. So now just doing more of it. All right, sounds good. Like, what, you know, start doing it in 22, 23 and fire it up. Like, it's easier to right. do in men's and women's basketball. Easier to do. They didn't even mention really baseball and softball. I was kind of surprised, to be honest, because um, I think those are areas that those two sports could really push as well, especially when we talk about non conference games being difficult to arrange. Right. Put a big old event together uh, and and tie all the you know tie all those teams together in those sports it sounds pretty easy to me. But yeah, that isn't man. For those sports, it's going to be easier. For Olympic sports, it's going to be easier. But for football purposes, for Pac-12 football fans, not uh, yes specifically Ducks fans, but plenty of fans across the Pac-12, the implementation of this and getting both a Big Ten and ACC non-conference game on the same year schedule and non-conference play going to be a minute. Gonna be, right. be a minute minimum mi- minimum 24 just in terms of that's when they could even move to eight in terms of conference games after that <laughs> then if they're going to honor all the existing contracts and that's what was said today not here to blow up existing deals and apparently fcs games are some kind of sacred cow for reasons that still escape me not to the big 10 they warren it was easy for him to say yeah we're not going to break any it's like well you already eliminated them <laughs> If you're all like-minded, if everyone's on the same page, then I want to hear from Jim Phillips and George Klyovkov why the FCS games are so valuable to their leagues. Um, If this is about increasing the value of inventory and television and money and caliber competition and blah, 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 
well, then why are your leagues still valuing those games that everybody out there, fans of long already tuned out of those games? And what are we doing? But unfortunately, that's where we are. So that's for the <laughs> – we, we spent more time and gave you more by way of clarity on the alliance in 15 minutes than they did in an hour-long press conference and press release, which was, like I say, a whole lot of ambiguity, unfortunately. Exactly. But All right, let's move we're on. Both looking for, yeah, but we're both looking forward to the opportunity to, you know, see NC State. Yeah, home and home with Miami, NC State. Shoot, like I say, in any given year, I mean, you, look in the middle. Don't even just look at the top. Yeah, Clemson and Florida State's nine cons in the years ahead also make it really, really hard. But bottom line, what you're gonna poo poo on like Virginia Tech? You'd rather, you'd rather again, you'd rather see a home game with one of the South Division opponents right now when they're I'm in a cyclical down year. I'm still the conference integrity guy. That's a different debate. So am I, but I don't think you lose it by going to eight games if you want. Yeah, maybe if you want. If this is part of it, if it's an if-then statement, going to eight in order to play another caliber game is worthwhile. Yeah. But you're and it also, I know, I know, I know, Pac-12 fans don't want to hear it. What? Getting in front of East Coast eyeballs is not a bad thing. It's not, but you're going to have strength of schedule differences. Like you know, this year, UW fans are very confident this year because of who they play at home, who they don't play, versus who Oregon plays tougher schedule, et cetera, et cetera. If you go down to eight, you're going to have more of that, I think. But but in the bigger picture, when you're looking at marquee matchups, when you're looking like going back east, like you said, there's value in it. It just, it just skews it all. But it's college football. It's, it's skewed anyway, right? I mean, it's not it's not perfect. It's never been perfect. It's never going to be perfect. No. So, no. Let's take a quick break and come back and hear more with James Crepia and Aaron Fentress. This is Ducks Confidential, a podcast from the Oregonian and Oregon Live. All right, let's let's get to the let's get to the Ducks currently. Let's is there any yes. new developments in the in the in the, quarter, in the quarterback battle and some other position battles? Is, I mean, Brown's still the guy, right? I mean, it was a scrimmage, it was closed. You know, you, you wrote a little about what you heard about it. Where are we at with QB? It's still Brown. He's still the guy. So I I can't imagine it not being uh, Anthony Brown Jr. at this point. No, at quarterback, I I just can't. Um, and look, and that's the way it should be, and it shouldn't just be about. Uh, experience being the only factor. Again, you can have experience and not have talent, you know, at any given position, anywhere. But that's not the case here. Yeah. So, you know, yes, when you go on the fact that he does have the experience that none of the other three uh, freshmen do have. Combined. Uh, yeah, I mean, none of them, none of them, <laughs> none of them played in the played college the game. game. None of them played. Right. So, you know, so it's, it's just what it is. A thousand more plays than them, right? Yeah, that's just, it, it's reality. Now, you know, doesn't mean I'm, it's not about projecting long term or draft prospects or any of that. This is about the here and now, the 2021 season. Who is ready on September the fourth and going forward? It's Anthony Brown Jr. Uh, that's that's the reality. Now again, doesn't mean that if they had to go out there, if something happened to him, that you know one of the other three freshmen uh, couldn't necessarily be capable. No, hardly. Uh, and I think the position battle for the backup role, quite honestly, may be one of those ones that plays out a little bit. Uh, and then you get into the idea of you know, what happens, we're talking about the season opener, potentially at Fresno State. I know we'll get into it more next week. But that or the week three game with Stony Brook. And then, yes, Arizona and eventually Colorado. And there could be some opportunities for some of these young quarterbacks to get into games and get their feet wet. And you've still, still got the four-game redshirt rule and things like that. So uh, Great rule, I, by the way. I, I don't I think – oh, yeah, it's, it's – no, it is. It's yeah. a, a tremendous change. So bottom line, I, I don't think, you know – 
the the backup role is necessarily definitively determined just yet. Uh, and nor do I think it has to be. I think yeah. that that can play out in a game where somebody goes out there as the two in a blowout and somebody else may step in after one or two series after that guy to get them game experience. So again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in terms of the top of the position battle quarterback, no, to me, that was never uh, uh, really in doubt in the first place. But for a couple other spots, either near the top of the depth chart or at the very top, uh, I think there is uh, still to be determined, uh, particularly at boundary corner. Uh, that to me is the spot that who starts is probably less relevant in the grand scheme of things. It'll be a statistical note. It'll, it'll be a, a worthy honor for whoever gets it. But with DJ James uh, and Jamal Hill indefinitely suspended still, and now as we approach game weeks, you know it certainly looks like that that's going to span into the season. Should that prove true, well, Dante Manning and Triquez Bridges are competing for that job. They continue to compete for that job. I could see them competing for that job all week, all game week. And like I say, who ends up being the starter, it, it, I, they're both going to play. Like Mario said today, they're both going to play. If we had to play a game today, they're both going to play. That was never really up for debate. That was clear. <laughs> Michael Wright's going to be on one side. One of the two is going to be on the other. And whoever's not on the field at any given time, the next guy is going to be the next guy in. So, like I say, who ends up starting – to me, is going to be less significant than the rep count between the two of them and the situational moments between the two of them. Bridges is taller. Uh, he's been in the system. All right, maybe not this defensive system, but the program. He's been in the program longer as one of the eight right. third-year freshmen. So with that said, you know he has more practice time in general. No, in the defensive system, it's the same uh, because Tim DeRuiter just showed up this offseason. But to the big picture, he has been around college football for a couple of years, whereas Manning missed last year due to a hamstring uh, strain that lasted all season. So they're both going to play. They'll both play probably a significant number of snaps, but I'm more interested in seeing just the distribution of those snaps. Uh, who starts is, like I say, it could end up proving far less relevant. Same thing goes with weak side linebacker. Drew Mathis and Justin Flo are going to play. I know fans have been clamoring for Flo. Obviously, he's really excited to play coming off of last year. He got hurt in the opener against Stanford, uh, and that ended his season. Former five-star, him and Noah Sewell playing together is obviously the long term of the position. But you shouldn't just look past Drew Mathis. One, he has experience, and that matters, uh, and played well in some of the games last season that he was in. So he's going to play a role. Who can? Who starts and who doesn't? That's that's something for the notes, but Justin Flo is absolutely going to play, and Drew Mathis is absolutely going to play. You don't play 100% of the snaps. <laughs> so, like I say, to me, like those are two where it's it's probably more about snap distribution than it is necessarily about who starts. A couple other spots elsewhere, though. A tight end uh, behind Spencer Webb. To me, it's very clear that he's a top depth chart, but a little bit of ambiguity uh, thereafter, in part due to the injury to Patrick Herbert, uh, knee injury for him. So seeing where two, three, four, and five now fall at the tight end position, I think is a bit ambiguous. Uh, receiver, the top. Oh, yeah, and everybody's I wanna, back. I want to yeah, ask you one quick question. McCormick, yeah. McCormick has been a story for four or five years now. Yeah, uh, I, jo- I joked yeah. with his mom once that he's going to be eighty when he's, he's going to be eighty when he leaves Oregon and have like ten degrees the way things have been going. But mm-hmm. he's back now, looking healthy after all the different problems he's had with his ankle. How much do you think he might end up in the mix actually this season? Because this is a kid who had beaten out Freeland for a little bit there a couple years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, he was in position, go back to the spring of 
19. Yeah. And he was really in a good position. I mean, we were, yeah, I mean, not just in the spring, through the spring game, even at the start of fall camp, uh, things were looking very, very positive for him coming off, obviously, the, the leg injury that he suffered in the 2018 opener. So things were in a good spot. And yeah, it's obviously it's just been one issue after another, all stemming from the original injury, but then just successively thereafter, uh, just myriad issues with the leg. And it's really just the entire leg slash ankle area. It just it's it's kind of just expanded and compounded on itself over and over again. Right. Bottom line, uh, yeah, I mean he's th- this isn't just a a heck of a story and potentially a really uplifting and positive story. This would be a remarkable story uh, if he's able to get back on a college football field. And every indication right now is that he has a very, very good chance to do so. Um, when we've seen him out there, going back to the first scrimmage a couple of weeks ago, we saw him out there. He was out there, and he was out there with the second team. And like I say, Webb was out there uh, with the ones. So, yeah, DJ Johnson was not – uh, fully back yet he had just returned that day so he was only in helmets at that time but having said that all right so he's worst case scenario third at the moment uh and that's like i say and that and, and that's not knocking down the freshman either it's just the reality of again we go back to experience and other things and then if he's fully right. healthy and what is you know if he's able to reach his full potential obviously again been away from the game from a long long time in terms of actual in-game action but is he going through practices? This isn't somebody who's just throwing pads on just to say he did it again and then you know he's off in the corner. Hardly. Hardly. He's yeah. in the thick of it just like everybody else um, and going through the contact just like everybody else. So if he's able to see the field again, whether it be on the 4th, the 11th, the 18th, or all of the above and thereafter, uh, again, would be a, a remarkable story, remarkable comeback story from what, again, was just a, a nasty injury that just then – compounded on itself and got further complicated and further complicated and multiple surgeries and just what a mess. Uh, but yeah, yeah it would certainly be a incredibly uplifting story uh, if Cam McCormick is able to pull it off. And like I say, to me, I, I think he could very well end up being uh, the number two tight end for the Ducks entering the season. And in that case, yeah, there's a pretty good chance that he'll see the field uh, at this point. Again, I'm not you know, proclaiming it to be the case, but just based on what we've seen in practice and what we saw in the first scrimmage, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say there's a pretty good shot that, but they've said from the get, you know, this whole fall camp, it's positive, but because of how long this process has been, it's not even cliche. This is day at a time. Absolutely. One, because they've all been down the road and two, and and lived it already, and two, because he is coming back off well, of the multi surgeries and and he's had three or four. All, I'm almost back moments and then yeah. something else happens. So yeah. like, I know they're as a family, they're like, we don't want to jinx it. I was surprised he talked the other day about it at all. Cause they've been sort of like, we don't want to jinx anything because every time we think he's coming back, something happens. So fingers crossed yeah. for that kid. Cause he's yeah. worked his ass off. And also not yeah. only has he had the problems at Oregon, he blew out his knee in high in school. High school. Yeah. Missed pretty much most of his senior year. So this is a guy who's yeah. been battling injuries for basically all to the same five life. years now. Yeah. Yeah. All to all the to same, same life. So. Yeah. Now, so. wide receiver. Okay. We got Red back. We got Giant Johnson back. Seems like they've been around since I was in college, damn near. Now they're they're gonna start, right? And then you've got is, is it gonna be Pittman or is it gonna be Devin Williams? And then you got a bunch of freshmen back there vying for for time. How do you see that position shaping out as, as of right now? So I, I think this is really gonna come down to uh, at least to start the season again, kind of leaning on that experience. 
I don't take it as a foregone conclusion uh, that anybody starts. And again, it, depending yeah. on the personnel package that they walk out there um, in at any given time. I mean, the top four receivers, I mean, the whole receiving core is back, but the top four receivers are back. So, and you say, all right, well, they're going to go out there in 11 personnel. If they do, well, then there's three receivers and then it's going to be three of the four. If yeah. they go out there in 10 personnel for some reason, well, then there's a chance that all four receivers could be out there. Or Spencer Webb is split out, and we're not calling him at a tight end of line tight end and, and what have you. So that's why I say, like, who exactly starts and what the personnel package is and all that kind of stuff could be, again, I'm more more about rep distribution. The other part is, is that Jalen Red is coming off of missing the spring or at least a significant portion of it, it was limited to start fall camp. Now he's been, he was back out there when we, you know, we saw him uh, last week during practice. So sounds like he is certainly drawing closer to same thing with Devin Williams was dealing with something minor, um, but drawing closer to. So in terms of just, can I, you know, project any, either one of them as a more likely starter than the other at the moment, it's a little bit harder. I'd say probably Devin, just because again, again, Jalen's injury stems back from the spring. Uh, but Having said that, it could be any combination thereof. Uh, obviously, Giant Johnson's been around. Uh, I would say I, I feel pretty confident that he'll be a starter in the first game. Uh, I can't tell you which position, though. And I think that's kind of the other factor in this is not just that it'll, it, assuming all four are healthy, well, then it could be a combination of three of the four. But the other part being, assuming all four are healthy, you really didn't see that last season. Right. You know, because Devin came on after the first couple of games. And then when he got back out there, well, then Micah was out for a couple of games or limited at least or in some capacity. And, you know, one way or another, there just wasn't. All, and then Devin got out late in the season. So you never really saw this combination all at full strength simultaneously. So it's hard to judge and assess. Well, like, all right. So then if they are, then who's the X, who's the Y, who's the Z? Devin is the definition of a prototypical X receiver. Johnny has played X. Johnny has played Z. Johnny's been in the slot. Jalen is almost undoubtedly an absolutely a slot receiver. So he'll be at the Y or F slash H if they go into a four wide situation. All right. Mike has been in the slot. Mike has been at the Z. He is capable of playing the X, but that's basically his, his main two roles. Versatility is great. It's awesome. It's a wonderful trait. But having a, a home for everybody in a dedicated role uh, is is nice as well at times. So I think that could be – if there's any ambiguity in terms of the top end of the receiving core, I think that's a little bit of it. It's just if they're all at full strength, where, where are their natural homes? Then you mentioned the freshmen, and, man, that's, the, that's the, the bigger picture, maybe not for September 4th or the first couple of weeks, but to me the bigger picture for the season question at the position is how much do – particularly Thornton and Franklin, how much do they push the elder statesman receivers for playing time as the season goes on? And not just, oh, they're coming off the bench and and getting in the rotation. No, no, no. How much are they pushing to start as the season goes on? That's, to me, the bigger question because physically they're enormous. Um, they're absolutely enormous, and they're obviously the long-term future of the business. And that's not looking past Isaiah Brevard either, by the way. It's just that he was one of the summer arrivals, so it's you know from a learning of the offense standpoint, he's a little further behind relative to the mid-year enrollees. But for Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin, yeah, I mean you can just see that the talent is 
obvious. And same thing went with the freshman tight ends and Terrence Ferguson and Maliki Matabal. Again, I, that combination of tight ends, receivers, those five players, certainly the, the future of the position for the Ducks. The question is, how fast do you see that future you know, materialize immediately? And then how fast can that future push the present for opportunities literally like in, in, in the like present, right you know, right now. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a conversation for September 4th. I think that's just a conversation that's had over the course of the full 2021 season. Right. Okay. Okay. So here, here's something I want to get through real quick before we sign off here, you know, Doug fans, obviously hoping this team contends beyond the PAC 12. Hmm. And in my experience covering this team, when they've been contenders beyond the Pac-12, there's been something special about the team, something unique. Either they're rushing for 280 a game or you had Mariota mm-hmm. or the defense is allowing under 20 a game. That has been the calling card for those teams. Even the 2019 team, which didn't make the playoffs, but the defense allowed, what, 16, 18, 17 points a game, something like that. So obviously that unit was special. And then, of course, you had a Justin Herbert. Mm-hmm. What about this team this year? is going to be special because it's one thing to talk playoffs. It's one thing to say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, for me, it's not saying you're going to do it. Like, which part of the team is going to be special? You can't be just good pushing the ball, passing the ball, and on defense. You have to go undefeated or go 12-1. and You have to be dominant someplace. Defensively, they took a step back last year. The running game Mm -hmm. has never been dominant the past few years. And you have a transfer quarterback who we don't know. He's never been dominant in his career. So where is this team going to find that dominant edge in your estimation, to have a chance to go 12 and one, because if they don't have that, it's just not going to happen. They're going to get caught by somebody. It's just going to, it's just inevitable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that to, to the premise of what you're getting at, I, I think the, the greatest potential for a dominant area on the team personnel wise would be in the defensive front seven. I mean, you've got a absolute game wrecker and Kayvon Thibodeau we talked about it you know, rather extensively in the last episode of the podcast, and combine him with Noah Sewell and Justin Flo, and you've got three former five stars in the front seven. Right. Uh, then Mace Funo off the other edge, former four-star uh, off the edge. And frankly, if he played his senior season and he didn't have an ACL injury, who knows, maybe he could have earned a fifth star by then. But now you know, we're three years in, and who cares about four and five stars yeah. at that point? But blue chip, <laughs> blue chip prospect. Right. Uh, a Braden Swinson, uh, also in that mix where he can play with his hand in the dirt or off the edge. Uh, Adrian Jackson, a situational pass rusher, but when healthy is a really dynamic situational pass rusher in the rotation uh, behind Thibodeau. But Swinson, Keon Ware-Hudson, uh, Christian Williams, Dorless, uh, this is a talented defensive front. They still have to now, to be clear, because, again, they lost to starting interior defensive tackles from last season. So they have to replace some personnel. But that personnel that left, both guys went undrafted. So, you know, it's not like you're talking about replacing multiple first-round picks. They did not have prolific senior seasons, short sample or not. And is the potential there for – like we talked about it last week. I think that the collection of – the four interior tackles, the top four at least, will be in the rotation, even though they are less experienced right now entering the season than they were a year ago. I think the chance is pretty high that that collection could be more productive and disruptive than they were a year ago. Then, but like I say, 
where is the most where is the chance to be elite where's the chance to be special to your point of question i think if you're talking about in the front seven that you've got three guys in particular who were former five-star players and a mace foon off the other edge the former four-star player and multiple guys on the defensive line who were either high-end threes or four stars and you got a whole lot of blue chip prospects in the front seven uh there's not a lot of pac-12 defenses you can say that and that was fascinating. What's fascinating about that is that you're, it's still like this is one of the things I love about college football is that it's still speculative. Like there's a lot of talent there, but we've never seen that talent be dominant because they weren't dominant last year. Even Kayvon had a nice season, but he wasn't exactly dominant for seven or eight games. Sewell had his up and downs. He had an injury in midseason that hurt him a little bit. But it's just like, it's like, is this team going to live up to? what you just talked about? Because if it does, yeah, they're going to be as special as 2019, right? Because in theory, there's a higher ceiling for a lot of these guys and what they had in 2019, especially along the defensive line, which you and I have talked about. You just have better talent. But, mm-hmm. like, it's still a mystery. Like, they could go to Ohio State and just get steamrolled, for all we know. Or they could go to Ohio State and that front seven. And that may not and that may not be indicative of much. Of what they could do the rest of the season, exactly. Like, they could get steamrolled, and then that could be the thing that really, you know, they learn from him and get better as the season goes along. So I, I just find the defense to be absolutely compelling for the reasons you said and yeah. the mystery of it all. Like, it's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, how like, and you got a new coordinator. You got a new safeties coach. Right. So, I mean, there's there's moving parts here, to be clear. Yeah. You know, it's not like they've got all the answers um, entering the season. They're, they don't. But, look, I mean, let's bring this conversation back to approximately a year ago. You know, a year ago. We're not even talking about a season, literally, right. to the day. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but, you know. Were things more certain for the defense in a lot of ways outside of the opt outs and all the things that were going on in terms of just no, you know, it was definitely uncertain. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but but you had a returning coordinator. You heard once once you knew that Demo was back. All right, yes, Holland had opted out. Yes, Breeze had opted out. Yes, Graham had opted out. But you had returning wow. pieces. I, I I didn't look past that. <laughs> yeah. Not dismissing no, it. They're all in the NFL, right. uh, and 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 Demo got there too. So it, yes. The drop-off was predictable is what I'm saying. Like, to but, me, I felt like the drop-off was coming in the game. But the drop-off happened in the front seven in the run game and then pass disruption. And based on what was lost and based on what was returning, that was one of the more surprising aspects of last year's defensive progression. Because, again, the interior of the defensive line was back. KT was back. Wasn't his fault any of the issues, quite honestly. Um, he can only take on so many double teams successfully uh, sooner or later. And again, short sample, other things, myriad things involved. But bottom line, yeah. did they lose some guys from the front seven compared to the 19th season? Yeah. Was there anybody from the front seven who was irreplaceable? No. And Bryson Young had a terrific, terrific 2019 season to cap off his year. And it was happy for him that he just signed as a, as a UDFA again and got back in the league for a minute. And Lamar Winston you know, had his moments. But ultimately, we're talking about to your point, all right, well, there's some something fascinating, a little bit of uncertainty. There's a change of coordinator. There's moving parts. You haven't totally seen it yet from this, for, even from the top-end talent and prospects that they have on defense. All right, well, go back a year ago, and the parts that you felt most certain about ended up proving to be some areas where they had some of the biggest concerns and biggest issues. Right. So it's not always absolute, even when you think you have answers. That's, and that's everybody, to be clear. That's not just an Oregon thing or anybody that – you can't ever take anything for granted. I mean, look, you thought that the run game could have, could have, would have, should have been tremendous. And 
a freak injury happens to CJ where I know he's had a long injury history, but messing up a ligament in his thumb, I mean, that's just that's just bad luck, man. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, get hit on a tackle or mess up your knee or something, but I mean, messing up your thumb, I mean, come on now. Like that's just that's just flat out bad luck. Compared to everything else he's played through and dealt with, like that's really bad luck. But be that as it may. So I think in terms of to your point, what could be elite, I think the front seven has the best chance. Okay. So, hey, we're, we're uh, what, 11 days away from the first game? Are you, you glad camp's almost over? I, I know I, I, yeah, I've been in camps in my life, and I get tired of it very quickly. I'm, get to I'm the just, games, baby. I'm looking forward to the games. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing fans back in the stands again and, and whatever is permissible and allowed and, and what people feel you know comfortable showing up to games in right now um, uh, under the circumstances and everything and like. But, no, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I was uh, – Love football season, uh, college football, and and pro football season. But no, I love the fall. It's a tremendous time of year, and yeah, looking forward to it. It's it's when when things start to matter again, uh, and you know they they keep track on the scoreboard and all the rest. Yes, it's a whole lot of fun. So, looking forward to it. Uh, excited for it, and obviously, you know, some tremendous games ahead. Starting with obviously we know about week two, but first things first, uh, a week one game with Fresno State that I don't think you should look past. I know that it's a you know a decent point spread and stuff. I get all that. But what is the spread on that game? That was- uh, it's last I had seen it was twenty one. But having said that, you know, there's there's storylines there. There's obviously the Ruder having coached there uh, and everything else. So there's there's some obvious storylines there, and plenty of players out of California who you know cross paths and all that stuff. And to say nothing of the multiple Washington transfers on uh, Fresno State's offense. So there will be a uh, um, re. Revisiting and exchanging of pleasantries, I'm sure, uh, with some f- certain former Huskies who are uh, on Fresno State. So, yeah, like I say, it should be a lot of fun. And then, obviously, yes, then we delve all into week two and, and the matchup in Columbus and everything else. But I don't think the season gets summed up in the opener. I don't think the season gets summed up in the biggest non-conference game. I think there's still plenty to be played for here. So uh, look, look forward to watching it and look forward to uh, chronicling it here on uh, the Ducks Confidential Podcast. So, again, appreciate everybody for listening and for those of you watching as well. Make sure to subscribe uh, to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast. That way all the latest episodes pop into your phones. So if you like the show, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend. Definitely helps us uh, get the show distribution, all the likes. So subscribe, rate, like, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, we look forward to getting into things in full gear in game week mode next week. So, again, appreciate everybody for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week.